Well, grace and peace to you all in the name of Jesus. Uh, Our reading is going to come out of John chapter 11. We'll start in verse 17 this morning if you want to follow along in your Bibles. We're in the fifth week of a series in which we're examining the I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. And this week, we'll be exploring Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. Uh, These are not necessarily synonyms for one another, so it's kind of like a buy one, get one free sort of week where we get these two claims where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Let's read John's gospel together, starting in verse 17. I'm reading through verse 27. John's gospel reads this way. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb For four days, he beat Jesus by a day. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. This sisterly dynamic will play out in a different way in a couple of chapters. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And the question that Jesus asked her, he asked us this day, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Father, our longing and desire is that we would have a greater understanding of who you are and what you're up to in the world through the understanding of this passage and this text. Jesus, would you teach us this morning as you have long taught the church throughout the generations, give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see you and your word this day. Amen. Well, one of the great joys of pastoral ministry is the experience of sharing life's great peaks with people. I take great joy, for example, in officiating wedding ceremonies. And I take joy not just in officiating the service, but all that is sort of put into the build up to that day. I enjoy the premarital counseling and the sort of crafting and planning the service. It's funny how everybody wants to have this unique service that has been participated in by millions, maybe billions of people for centuries, but theirs is going to be unique. But it's fun. Sitting in those meetings and those sessions together, it's this season of engagement where couples just cannot help but smile at one another every time that they make eye contact, at least in my presence. I know the wedding planning is a whole different situation, but when they're with me, it's wonderful and joyous. I have always appreciated the invitations to graduations and graduation parties. And to be totally candid, I think graduations are tedious and time-consuming to say the least, but there's something about being invited into a moment that's so significant for those who are participating 
that it's a joy to, to attend. I have to tell myself every time I'm, I'm listening to the 800 names being called at the ceremony. I take joy in child dedications where people in our community of faith present their children to the congregation that they want to raise them in the ways of the Lord and invite the church to come and love and support them as they pursue that vocation. I take joy when people send me a little text message or give me a phone call that a prayer request had been answered, that that thing that we've been wanting and longing for, that God has heard and acted upon, I take joy in these sort of peak moments of pastoral uh, ministry. But pastoral ministry isn't just about joining people in the peaks of life. It too entails journeying into the valleys of life with people. The diagnosis that brings unwanted news. The phone call that takes your breath away. Listening to someone across from me tell me a story, just thinking, I wish this wasn't true. I wish this wasn't happening. When someone's tears quickly become my own tears, this too is part of pastoral ministry. And just two chapters ago in John's gospel, Jesus was enjoying this peak moment in the life of one of his followers. There's this blind man, we read the text together, who receives sight for the first time in his life and he's enjoying the world in an entirely different way. And in this morning's passage, we see Jesus leaving the peaks of life and journeying into the valley with a grieving family who's just lost a loved one. You see, Mary and Martha have just lost their brother, Lazarus. We aren't exactly sure how he died, but there is some sort of sickness that came upon Lazarus that we see early in John chapter 11. And these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they are not strangers to Jesus. They're not just sort of an ambiguous part of the crowds that are following him as his popularity and fame arose. Jesus was close with this family. Lazarus was a close family friend. You see, John shares with us earlier in chapter 11 these words that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. These are people who Jesus was close with. And upon hearing about Lazarus' sickness, Jesus drops all of his ministry. He drops everything that he is doing and he makes his way to go be with the family. But before Jesus is able to offer his final goodbyes before Jesus was able to have those moments where you reflected on the good times that you shared with a close family friend before they're taken from you. Lazarus dies. And when Jesus arrived into town, Lazarus' sister, Martha, goes to greet him, and in her grief, she exclaims to Jesus, Jesus, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only you were here, Jesus, you could have prevented his death. And these aren't words meant to offer sort of guilt trip to Jesus, like where were you, Jesus? Why weren't you here present in this moment accusing or blaming him for her brother's death? They are rather an expression of her grief, of a lost future that was founded on her faith. That is, Martha deeply believed that Jesus could have healed and saved Lazarus. She has faith that he could have done that, and she is grieving 
the loss of a future in which that would have taken place. If only Jesus would have been here, my brother would be alive today. And many of us sitting in this room, we have experienced this sentiment as well. If only Jesus would have. If only Jesus would have healed her, her children wouldn't be without a mom. If only Jesus would have healed him, my father wouldn't be suffering anymore. If only Jesus would have stepped in, if only Jesus would have been present, things would be radically different from what they are. If only Jesus would have been here, he could have prevented the tragedy and the suffering of this life. Where was Jesus? I don't know, but he wasn't here. He could have done something, but he didn't do anything. And in our passage this morning, we read that many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss and in their suffering of their brother. In Jesus' world, it would have been common for the community to grieve with people who are going through their individual suffering. But what's unique about this sort of detail to the story is that it seems that the Jews, these are the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem, they're prominent people. A lot of scholars suggest this leads or gives evidence to the fact that this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are a prominent family in their community and in the broader region. They are well known. They are dialed in. They are networked with those who are in high places. But this family, too, they, they were an affluent family. We see in a couple of chapters that Mary, one of the sisters, is going to sort of anoint Jesus with perfume that would have taken a year's worth of wages to purchase and buy. And she's like, ah, it's good. I'm just going to pour it all over Jesus' feet, right? They're an affluent family, and they're close with Jesus. They're tight with him. They're godly. They're not standing at a distance. They're not far away. They know, and they have Faith. If there were any people in the world and in Jesus' time that should have been untouched by suffering, it was Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They are prominent, they are affluent, and they are godly people. They are close to Jesus, and yet they don't escape the realities of suffering and death and brokenness in the world. They too know what it is to suffer. In Viktor Frankl's a uh, very imminent book called Man's Search for Meeting. In the preface, there was a Harvard psychologist that wrote these words, to live is to suffer. To live is to suffer. No one escapes, in other words, life without the experiences of suffering and brokenness in the world. That is, regardless of who you are, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your disposition and personality, regardless of your race and ethnicity, regardless of your upbringing, regardless if you've had faith, a different kind of faith, you've never had faith, regardless of who you associate with, there is a truth about the human experience that, that none of us escape. And that, it, that truth is this, that we will all suffer. Everyone suffers. Everyone experiences the brokenness that exists in this world. Does this mean that all suffering is the same? No, absolutely not. It is not all the same. Does it mean that some of us don't suffer more than others? This is certainly not true. We know that there are some in our community and in the world who suffer more than others. It does mean, though, that whether it's because of mental illness, physical limitations and disabilities, experiences of abuse, the cruelty of other people, 
the loss of a loved one, unjust circumstances, your family dynamics, and all of the endless number of ways that people suffer in this world. We've all had that moment where we thought, if only Jesus would have. If only Jesus would have, things could have been different. And our text this morning teaches us an important reality about God that we must cling to as the people of God in the midst of loss and grief and suffering. And that reality is this, is that God is present in our sufferings. In the midst of our wondering, where was Jesus? Why hasn't he shown up? Why isn't he here in this moment? In the midst of the disorientation that comes when tragedy strikes, we can have confidence that God is not indifferent to our suffering. He doesn't stand at a distance like, your suffering does not matter to me. I'm busy doing more important things. You see, in our passage this morning, Jesus doesn't remain at a distance upon hearing about Lazarus' sickness. Instead, he comes close. He goes close. He moves close to the family upon hearing that news. And he isn't just there. God shares in our pain. God shares in our hurt. God shares in our tears. The narrative of Lazarus' resurrection in John's gospel contains the answer to one of the most famous Bible trivia questions that people frequently ask. What is the shortest verse of the Bible? Do you know what it is? Jesus wept. It comes in John eleven thirty-five. 35. Do you know what Jesus was weeping about? He was weeping the loss of his friend Lazarus. Jesus weeps with those who weep. He experiences the tragedy of loss with us. While in seminary several years ago, there was an event that happened in my immediate family. Without getting into the details of it, there was a really sharp breaking of relationship between my parents and my youngest brother. And it sort of it sort of collided in this single event or this moment. It was like building up and suddenly it just And I remember getting the phone call from my mom sort of articulating and telling the story and it just wrecked me. It was like you've had those moments where pain and anguish, they, they're so, it feels like your heart and everything in your life is so full of this that you just want to explode on the inside, you know? And I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to do. There's no easy answers. There's no solution to broken families. And so I did the only thing, for whatever popped in my mind, I called one of my youth volunteers at the time, Long Beach First Church of the Nazarene. Um, He is, and he was at the time, an older man. I think at the time, Doc was in his late 70s. Yes, I had a youth volunteer in his late 70s. It's how we rolled back in the day. It was awesome. And I basically invited myself over into his house because I didn't know where else to go. And when I got to Doc's house, I remember him and Marilyn leading me into their living room and just sitting me down on the sofa. I was obviously hysterically crying already in this moment. And through my tears, I began to share with them all that had happened that evening between my parents and, and my brother. And I just cried and cried and cried and cried. And when I got to the end of my sharing, they too weeping with me my tears were running down their face and they held me and I remember as Doc was rubbing my back 
him just saying through his tears, I'm so sorry, I'm glad you shared this with us. There's no advice. There's nothing that he did that changed the current reality. But just his presence and his tears were what I needed in that moment to carry and shoulder the burdens of this life with me. God is present in the midst of your pain, church. God is present in the midst of your tragedy and brokenness and your suffering and your grief and your loss. In all of those moments where you're wondering, if only Jesus would have been here, God is there. And he's not just present, he's crying your tears. And we as a church are called to be present in the midst of one another's pain. This is one of the beautiful things about being a part of a church is that we get to be the presence of God to those who are suffering and hurting and broken and grieving in our community. I wonder how this would change the way we think about community as a church if we recognize that everybody is suffering in some way or another. How does it change who we call, who we text, we go to lunch with, have coffee with, if we recognize that we are to be the presence of Jesus to one another in the midst of our grief and brokenness. But God's presence, we see in this passage, it's not just the sort of consolation prize of comfort to us. It's not like, well, Jesus shows up and he's like, well, you know, I could have done that, but instead I'm going to give you the second best thing I could have given you, and that's just sort of crying with you, is that Jesus' comforting presence comes with the gift of hope, is that Jesus' presence comes with the gift of hope. It's fascinating to me how Jesus responds when Mary, or excuse me, when Martha wonders aloud, if only you would have been here, Jesus. He doesn't tell her the types of things we often try to communicate in attempts to bring comfort to people. Jesus doesn't come to Martha and say, well, Martha, you know, everything happens for a reason. He doesn't come to Martha and say, well, you know what, Martha, it's all in God's timing. You just got to trust God. He doesn't say any of these things. These phrases, while they're meant to comfort, they usually just end up hurting and confusing things all the more. They give no hope. Jesus, rather, he responds in a way that gives actual hope. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. For I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me, and your brother certainly did, even though they die, they will live. This is the gospel. This is the Christian hope, church, is that in the midst of pain and suffering and loss, that these things do not have the final word on the lives of those who believe in Jesus the finality of our lives is not in the hands of death or sickness or suffering. It is in the hand of the one who is the resurrection and the life. For those who believe in Jesus, death doesn't win. Life in Christ wins. And this truth steadies us in faith while we experience the sufferings of this life. There's a modern hymn that articulates this theological and gospel truth this way. It reads or sings, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. The words are a reference to some verses in the book of Hebrews. And the, the picture that it paints in our minds is that like a ship 
tethered to an anchor in the midst of storms, so too our hope anchors us to Jesus and his life in the midst of the storms of this world. It anchors us to this reality that's proclaimed in Revelation 21 that there is a day when God will wipe every tear from crying eyes and death will be no more and there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for God has made all things new. And we who believe in Jesus are anchored, we are captured by this kind of hope in the midst of a suffering and broken world. But know this, this hope isn't just a story we've made up to comfort ourselves in the midst of tragedy and brokenness. It isn't just our wishful thinking. We have confidence in this hope because death didn't have the final word in Jesus' life. We have confidence in this hope because Jesus was raised from the dead. We have confidence in our hope because Jesus conquered the grave. We have confidence in our hope because he overcame the worst that sin could do to him. We have confidence in our hope because Jesus saw victory. We have confidence in our hope in the midst of suffering and difficulty and tragedy because Jesus not only said he was the resurrection and the life, he actually was the resurrection and the life. And our confidence is not just because we read about Jesus' victory in the scriptures, but because we experience that victory in the world today. At the end of this sort of event of Lazarus' story, there's this dramatic moment where Jesus insists on being brought to the grave where Lazarus had been buried. And he says to Martha and Mary, he says, hey, move the stone. Apparently, he's in a grave similar to the one that Jesus would be laid to rest in in a handful of chapters. And they inform Jesus like, no, 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 no. I don't know if you know anything about dead bodies, Jesus, but they smell. And if he's been in there for four days dead and we roll that tomb away, it's going to stink like real bad, like real bad to the point where we probably shouldn't, you know, roll the stone away. And he insists. He's like, no, 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 no. You need you need to move that stone right now. And so they move it. And I wonder in my mind as I was reading this story if they're just sort of like, you know, Jesus is really grieving and he's just losing it. He's lost his mind. He's crying hysterically. So let's just do what he needs to do in his grieving process. So pinch the nose and we're going to move the stone. But there's this dramatic moment that after they roll the stone away, I'm guessing there's no stench that came out of the tomb. But there's this dramatic moment where Jesus stands in front of this open tomb and he shouts out, or I picture him shouting out, Lazarus, come out. And I imagine everyone's standing there awkwardly and I'm like, dude, Jesus, I don't know what you're tripping on, but he's not coming out. He's dead. He's dead, dead. The point of detailing that Lazarus has been dead for four days is that in the Jewish mind, that's how many times perhaps the spirit was trying to get back to the body for three days. And then that fourth day, it's like, nah, he's gone. He's not coming back. But Jesus is standing there. He's like, Lazarus, come out. See, and apparently in Jesus' day, when you would die and be placed in a tomb, they would wrap you in like cloth, like a mummy. And the picture that we get at the end of this story in John's gospel is that Lazarus comes out of the tomb like a mummy. And as I was picturing, I was like, well, how does Lazarus come out? Like, is he over here, like, waking up and, like, hopping out because he's, like, strapped in? 
Or is he like chilling in there trying to get his feet loose so that he can walk out? But whatever it is, there's this moment where Lazarus comes out of the grave at the command of Jesus. Lazarus come out and he comes out. Man, he was dead. He was buried, sealed in his tomb. The tomb was unsealed and he came out resurrected and alive. If you're familiar at all with John's gospel or the story and life of Jesus, you'll know that this event functions like a foreshadowing for what is going to happen to Jesus. This is the last huge event of Jesus' ministry in John's gospel. And it's almost like, like Jesus anticipating his own death, burial, resurrection from the tomb. He plants this moment this event this miracle right here in anticipation of that event theologians like to call this here's a fancy word for you inaugurated eschatology Oof, you guys are going to be scholars by the end of this sermon but this inaugurated eschatology is the idea that the anticipated redemptive future of the scriptures is inaugurated in the person of jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is, Jesus, who is the life, makes life available in God to us in this present moment. That is, the idea that there's this future thing that's going to happen in John's gospel, and God takes it from the future, and he plants it right here in the present with Lazarus. And we, as a people who follow Jesus, we believe that God is going to do these redemptive things at the end of, end of times, on the last days, he will transform and redeem and renew all things. But one of the things we discover here in this passage is that God takes that future and he plants it right here in the present moment for us to experience now. The other day, Paige and I, we were uh, at this ice cream shop, Paige's favorite place to be on a date. And one of our favorite things about ice cream shops especially like the high-end ones that like do the handmade whatever, which we were at. We had a gift card though, so it was like free. Um, but we love samples, we love samples. Because the clever thing about the sampling is like, if you do it right and you got a friendly person who's giving you the samples, you got like two or three scoops before you ever buy anything and then you do the single scoop and it's like you got a triple, ah, oh, it's awesome. But the sample, the ice cream sample is a foretaste of what is to come. Inaugurated eschatology is this idea that God gives us a foretaste of what life will be like now in the moment before we've bought anything. In Santa Barbara, in our church up there, there was a, a man who was a part of it who was the president of the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission. And the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission, for those who may be unfamiliar, they they have two primary purposes for existing. One is to assist the homeless in that community with uh, daily foods, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and housing, sort of uh, short-term housing, overnight housing. But one of their, their bigger programs is to help those with a year-long recovery program, helping and assisting those who are struggling with addiction. And our pastor up in Santa Barbara, he would teach a Bible study at the rescue mission every single week while these guys were in this year-long recovery program to transform their lives, to get a hold of their addictions. And so we would have some of the guys from the rescue mission join our church from time to time because as part of the recovery process at the rescue mission is you have to be a part of a faith community. 
And so these guys, they would come and, and be a part of our congregation and be a part of our church, and you'd get to know them, and I swear to you, they're like the friendliest people you've ever met in your whole life. They're just like ordinary people. But after the sort of year-long graduation, after a year-long program, they have a, a graduation event where we can celebrate the courage and the strength and the perseverance that those who went through the, the program have sort of exemplified in their lives. And in the graduation, there's always one or two people who would share their, their story of where they were, where they currently are, and where they anticipate going. And sometimes there are these guys in our church who would share their stories, and you're like, whoa, that's not the person that I know at all. Like, I have a really hard time picturing you being the person that you're describing you once were. And as they share their story in front of these hundreds and hundreds of people in our city and in the church community who came to celebrate them, it was almost like God decided, I'm going to take a little bit of heaven, I'm going to put it in your life right now. And I want to transform you here today you're not just going to sit in this waiting room waiting for that day when you're going to be transformed and caught up, but I'm actually going to give you the grace you need to experience transformation and redemption today. It's almost like the healed, transformed life they will experience one day was gifted to them in the present. This is inaugurated eschatology. You see, church, our hope in the midst of suffering and brokenness comes with the reality that God is present with us. The thing that anchors us in the midst of the difficulties of this life and world is that we have real hope in Jesus. And what sort of makes us resolved in that hope is the foretaste of how God has redeemed things and transformed us even today. And if you are struggling this morning, God is present with you. You can have hope. And God, even in the midst of your suffering, can give you somehow a foretaste of what is to come one day. The question, though, is do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And the invitation is always extended to those who don't believe in Jesus yet. You can believe. You can believe. You can follow Jesus. You can have hope. You can experience the foretaste of what God has for us and for the world one day. And so I invite you, if you don't believe, believe. It is incredible and amazing. But more than that, church, for those of us who do believe in God's presence that God is present with a hurting and broken world. For those of us who do have real hope, for those of us who have tasted the good things of God already in this world, we offer those things to a broken, hurting, and suffering world. If there's one thing that the scriptures in the life of Jesus teaches us that the world is in darkness. There is suffering. There is brokenness. There is a sense of hopelessness that exists in the world, but it can be found in Jesus. And we as a church become God's presence in a hurting and broken world. When you cry with those who cry, when you weep with those who weep, when you're actually engaged with the brokenness that exists in our community, you bring the presence of God into those places. 
We as a church offer real hope in a world that is full of death. We as a church are to be a foretaste of the redemption that God wants to bring into the world that the world can taste. We are the sample. We're the ice cream sample. The world says, oh my gosh, your God is good because I see what you got. That, I want more of that thing. But we need only to answer the question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe, church, that the church is the presence of God in the world? Do you believe that the church brings real hope, actual hope, not wishful hope? We bring actual hope to those who are grieving and suffering in the world. That we actually are a foretaste of heaven. When people come in here, do you believe that this this is heaven, man? This is it. If you want to know what it's like, come to church. This is it. This is all there is. This sort of foretaste of what God is going to do. Do you love being the foretaste of heaven on earth? And I hope that we, like Martha, answer the question in the affirmative, yes, I believe. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. We have gathered in this place to proclaim that and declare it this morning. And our longing, God, is that somehow in the midst of the brokenness and suffering, we can be anchored to that hope that comes in who you are. Our longing, God, is that you would give us a foretaste of heaven on earth today. That not only we would experience it, but that we would be that to the world. That we would extend out from this place to those dark, broken, tragic situations in our city and community and the world to let them know that there is redemption that is possible and is coming through your son, Jesus. And so we ask, Lord, that as we believe that you would do a new thing in us, that we would experience new life and new creation. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray and believe. Receive this benediction and blessing as you enter into the service in the world. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more, far more than all we can ask or imagine, the one who makes dead things alive. To him be the glory in our church and Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in his peace.